Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best of the best to help you scale your business from 1 million to 1 trillion. Today's guest is a special one. His name is Suken, the co-founder and managing partner at Iterative. Suken, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Likewise. So I've been listening exhaustively to your uh, podcast, the Iterative Podcast. I really recommend it. So I, I know almost everything about yourself by listening to the, the podcast. I'm sure there is a lot of things that I don't know. But for the ones who didn't have the, the opportunity, who is uh, Suken? And, uh, and let us know a little bit more about yourself and what you are sure, doing. Sure, sure. Um, and Thank you for listening to the podcast. That's uh, that's kind of embarrassing. I, I still get a little embarrassed when people say they've listened to um, the <laughs> things that we kind of record and stuff, which I feel like you're a pro now. You're probably used to lots of people um, listening to you, but I'm still new. So a uh, little embarrassing, <laughs> but thank you. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, my story, I'll start kind of like further back just because it gives context to kind of like what I'm doing now. So right. um, I'm originally from Malaysia. I was born in Penang. Um, I moved to the US when I was about four or five years old. Um, and then my parents had me do this thing where I would live in the U S for nine months and then live in Malaysia for three months. So every summer break in the U S. So from the time I was five to about 18, we were doing this kind of back and forth thing. Um, early on, uh, we also moved around a lot. So I think I went to like eight different schools before I was 10. Um, the reason wow. being is my father was, he worked at Intel in the, since the late seventies. And at one point he was Intel's fixer. So he worked in manufacturing and he went to the worst performing factory and fixed it. Um, so it. every nine months, it's like a new assignment. <laughs> so we moved around a lot. Um, I started two companies in the U S the first one was an early machine learning company in 2008. Uh, we ran the company for about seven years. It was called decide.com. Uh, we raised 16 and a half million, which felt like a lot of money at the time, but with current seed stage and series A investments, uh, not so much, uh, but it felt like a lot at the time. Um, Good eBay point. eventually if, bought the company. two or three years ago, it would be a lot of money. I know, right? <laughs> so it's not only 10 years ago, it is kind of two or three years ago. Right? Yeah. Um, it's, but sorry it's wild to interrupt kind of... you. You were talking no, about it's just, your, it's wild your how much these, these yeah. amounts go up. Um, but yes, so we raised 16 and a half million. Uh, eBay bought the company five or seven years later. So that was kind of my first experience with entrepreneurship. Um, Brian and I, so Brian is my uh, other co-founder at Iterative. So we started that first company. We started a second company together called Weave. It's a professional networking uh, company. We like to call it, if you're familiar with Lunch Club, it's like, it's like offline Lunch Club, like real mm -hmm. life Lunch Club. Uh, lunch Club is online. Yeah. Uh, we went through YC, so we were summer 2014, um, when batches were, you know, small enough where you could have everybody at YC and you had it in person and all that stuff. I think uh, PG was still there. Um, and then we ran that company for a few years and same kind of story, raised a couple of million bucks, uh, sold it for a few years later, a uh, much smaller deal. Um, and then I took a year off and I traveled by myself. Uh, so I spent five months in Europe uh, and I spent seven months in Asia. And I think in the course of traveling around and kind of seeing other uh, communities, especially startup communities and other areas. Um, I got really excited about what was happening outside of San Francisco. Um, mm -hmm. So I moved to Singapore about five years ago and then we started Iterative in uh, March or February of 2020. So right as COVID was like happening. Um, and Iterative is a YC style accelerator uh, here in Southeast Asia. We only invest in Southeast Asia. Awesome. Uh, that, that's really an amazing story. Uh, I knew a, a lot of, of, of the story, but uh, I think for the ones who are following us, uh, I think it's really inspiring and, and congratulations in public for the amazing track records. Uh, that's uh, thank you. I mean, uh, a, a lot of luck goes into all this stuff, right? Uh, and a lot of people had to help in, in along the way, but thank you. And, and by the way, um, of course, let us know a little bit more about Iterative, about your process, the way you kind of decide um, or select the companies that uh, you guys work with, uh, what are the benefits for founders in the area, etc. Yeah. So look, um, Iterative, we started Iterative. Um, I, I like to always say uh, starting an accelerator was the last thing that I wanted to do. Um, especially in Southeast Asia. There's so many accelerators in Southeast Asia. I didn't want to be the 101st. Um, but I felt strongly that um, 
the magic of YC was that it's run by most of their partners are people who have started companies before. And so they're operators. And I think um, being a founder is such a unique experience that unless you've been one, it can be hard to kind of empathize. Um, and if it's hard to empathize, then it's hard to help. Um, and so we wanted to bring that to Southeast Asia. Um, other accelerators are great. I and mean, nothing wrong with that, right? But I think there's like a specific type of help that we wanted to kind of provide here in Southeast Asia. Um, and so I think that's how we got started here. Um, and our thesis for Southeast Asia was tons of opportunity. I actually think the founder raw materials are fantastic. Uh, I think people here are just as smart as anybody in Silicon Valley. And honestly, they're probably grittier. But we don't develop founders in Southeast Asia as well as we did in, in, in San Francisco. And I think that's going to change over time, honestly, with or without me. But if I can make it happen a little bit faster, then that's something that I'd like to do, especially since I'm from the, from the region. So typically, the companies that apply to, to be part of Iterative um, are at, at what stage? Oh, actually, they're all over the place. We've invested <laughs> in some, uh, we, we invested in uh, two guys that just graduated school and had no product. Um, we've invested in some companies, you know, with over a million in GMV. So it's kind of like all over the place. Um, so yeah, I, I would say, you know, if people are thinking about applying, we always tell people just apply. Like, right. don't worry about stage. Don't worry about just apply. Right. And, and typically it's a 150K check and a free month uh, program until yep. demo day, but you will, you will explain much better than myself. Sure. You, no, that's, that's basically it. So it's 150,000 USD. Um, it's a three-month program. Uh, we spend the first eight weeks basically trying to help you grow as quickly as possible. Um, I, mean, I can go into much more detail about that, but generally we try to help you grow as much as possible. And then the last month we run a fundraising bootcamp, which we actually just started on Monday for this current batch. Um, and awesome. all of that is trying to transfer as much knowledge as we have about how to pitch your company, how investors actually think about investing, um, and you know how to do all of that. Let's go into all those points for, for the ones who are thinking about starting up. And even for the ones, I think this is interesting in the trend that we discussed in our uh, previous conversations, for the ones who are working on, on scale-ups and know exactly what to do in scale-ups, let's say from Series A to Series C, but are a little bit scared and feel that maybe it's the right timing to start up from the scratch a company, but going from zero to one seems a little bit scary because they don't have the experience uh, compared to going from one to 10 or one to 20, uh, whatever it is. Yeah. I, you know, having kind of seen both sides of this, uh, I think they're both scary. So, I mean, if you're scared at zero, if you're scared of zero <laughs> to one, fair enough. If you're scared from one to 10, fair enough. Right. Um, exactly. But I think you're scared for different reasons. Um, zero to one, you don't know if you have something. And so what's scary about that is you're just taking a lot of risk on, is, the, is, the, is my idea good? Is this a problem that a lot of people have? Like you're taking all of that risk, right? Going from one to 10, you probably in series A and beyond, you have some reasonable idea that this idea, like what you're working on, there's a business there, there's some people who exactly. need it. And I think for a lot of people, it comes down to two worries from one to 10. The first part is, is, is what you're doing big enough to kind of like get through kind of the later stages? So that's, that's, one, that's one thing. Uh, and how do you kind of expand out from there? So I don't know, geographically, products, whatever. Then the other question uh, that a lot of these companies come into is, how do I make sure that I outcompete my competitors at that stage? If it is a big enough market, how do I make sure that I kind of like capture as much of the market uh, as quickly as possible before other people kind of like come in, right? So there's a lot of execution that kind of comes with that. Um, and typically at that stage, you need to, you know, you need to be a professional kind of like manager, right? You can't just run around and meet with everybody. And so you need, you know, real kind of roadmaps and real kind of financial controls and that kind of stuff. Um, so happy to talk about whichever side uh, that you think is helpful. Absolutely. But I think for, for the ones who are listening to us, um, and uh, I would say that the majority of our listeners are still in, in the US and uh, Europe, but we have an yep. interesting crowd 
in in Southeast Asia, and that's why we are uh, doing and running the Asian edition of of the podcast with uh, founders and operators in in the region. But to give a flavor for the ones who are listening outside of Southeast Asia, uh, and also for the ones from Southeast Asia that want to understand a little bit more about the yep. U.S. reality, as you have been living both. Um, so, what are the main differences and uh, the main nuances that we should consider? on starting up um, on in, in both uh, places, let's say San Francisco, yeah. uh, west coast of the US and uh, Southeast Asia. Yeah, um, a couple of things that are different and kind of like people should kind of consider, right? Um, so the first part is how developed the markets is. Now, everybody knows about this. And so, you know, but let me just be kind of like specific about it for maybe people in the US who don't know um, kind of like specifically what this means. I was once talking to a founder in Vietnam who wanted to start the Betterment or Wealthfront. So robo advisor for Vietnam, right? So he came in and was like, oh yeah, we want to do this Wealthfront. And I was like, okay, cool. It sounds great. This has worked at other places. Three months later, I talked to him and I was like, Hey, how's that going? And they're like, oh yeah, we're not doing that anymore. And I said, well, why aren't you doing that? And he's like, well, I was looking to build the robo-advisor, but there's there wasn't even an online brokerage. So now we're working on the online brokerage, right? And so there's these kind of, sometimes I think people, if they're not familiar with the region, they come in and they're like, oh, we're going to do this thing. And you just have to realize that there's some like more structural things that need to be worked on. Uh, again, Philippines, uh, we invested in a company out there, but 70% of people in the Philippines have never had access to credit before. So no credit cards, loans. And so um, when I talk about kind of like the development differences, um, it's it's uneven, let's say. It's not like everything is uniformly kind of like less developed, right? In some areas, it's like very underdeveloped. Some areas, it's very overdeveloped. Uh, I find that like I live in Singapore now, uh, I never take out my credit card everything is tapping and, you know, and all that stuff. And the U S is like, so behind on that. So I think just, you have to kind of think about these differently. Um, the other thing I would think about too, is rules are just different. Um, so the good example here is, uh, if you think about the U S and how the real estate system works, there's an MLS system and in Singapore and the rest of Southeast Asia, there is no MLS. So there is no standardized repository of like residential listings. So, that completely changes how prop tech works, right? So I think some of the built-in assumptions you have about kind of like how markets work, you have to reevaluate kind of from, I mean, Silicon Valley's favorite term, first principles, right? To kind of like reevaluate that. Um, practically, uh, there's a few things too. So if you're starting a company here, um, you have to be a better manager faster. The reason is, is because salaries are just lower. And so you, these companies get bigger much faster. Uh, I mean, people in Southeast Asia raising a, I don't know, a $5 million Series A can be a hundred plus person company. A $5 million round in the US is like, kind of like a seed round maybe, or maybe like less. And it's like, you have probably under 10 people. Um, and so, you know, managing a 10 person team in San Francisco and a hundred person team in Southeast Asia are very different. On top of that, uh, if you're having a hundred people, it's probably spread out across a couple of different countries. And if it's spread out of different countries, then you have, then you need kind of infrastructure around, okay, I'm in Singapore. Maybe I can run the Singapore office. What about the, what about the office in Bangkok? Who runs that? So, okay. We have country managers. Country managers are not a term that I remember ever hearing in the U S because you just don't think about right. it. Right. Then there's language differences. So I'm doing in all hands, but like maybe half of the people at the company don't understand what I'm saying. So, there's all of this stuff you have to kind of work on. And so on some level, you, I think in to found a company in Southeast Asia, you have to be a better like operator in these kind of like sense. Um, so that's the thing that we have to kind of like work on. Another thing is uh, international expansion or just market growth. Uh, Singapore has 5 million people. Uh, it's the smallest country in Southeast Asia, but a disproportionate number of startups get started here. Um, you need to be able to expand past Singapore, right? So first two years, maybe of you being around, you're gonna to have to start thinking about expansion. In the US, I mean, we sold a company to eBay and never had a conversation about going outside of the US, like never sniffed it, never came up, was never on an agenda. There's no point, right? There's plenty right. of market. Um, and so I think, you know, 
a, a lot of these areas you have to kind of be able to like break apart. Um, so those are just a few. Uh, I'm happy to kind of talk more about them, but I think those are kind of the ones that come to mind. That's a good point, and it makes me think about uh, Europe and and starting up from yes. from Portugal uh, as well with different languages. Also, a 10 million uh, population uh, country, and of course, very different from the UK. A lot of the Portuguese founders try to scale into into the UK and after into the US or directly into into the U US. If it is already crowded in the US, uh, they will try to go through uh, Euro European expansion. So typically uh -huh. uh, UK or Spain or France or Germany. Uh, and again, it's it's a completely uh, different world, uh, as you said, with different languages, with country managers, a lot of complexity uh, yeah. early on. So we have that uh, in common. <laughs> and I hear Latin, uh, Latin America is kind of the same. So I, I hear that Southeast Asia, exactly. Europe, Latin America are kind of the same. Obviously, Europe a little bit more developed um, but similar problems hey, what is the um so in southeast asia indonesia is the crown jewel for expansion indonesia 300 million people developing quickly that kind of stuff is there one in europe what's the one that all the founders want to get into i think that's uh it's not in Europe. I think that all the European founders, the majority, 80%, would dream into going into the US. So, uh, so it's outside uh, of Europe. Okay. But for the ones who want to consider international expansion uh, within uh, Europe, I would say it would be clearly the UK, uh, France, and uh, Germany, if I'm not wrong. And, and then, of course, there is also a lot of um, scale-ups expanding into southern Europe by um, uh, Spain. So Italy, uh, sorry mm. for, for the ones who are listening from, from Italy, sometimes it's a little bit more complicated to penetrate in, into that market. So usually that's also one of the largest economies in, in Europe uh, and one of the countries to consider. But I would say short answer, uh, definitely UK and after UK, Germany and France. And, and after that, uh, Spain and Italy as, as the main uh, economies in, in Europe. So uh, I'm curious. Uh, uh, I don't, I, I'm just curious of Europe. I don't know that much about uh, European kind of startups. Why did they want to go to the US? Because Southeast Asia, also a lot of the startups want to go to the US. And I wonder if it's the same reason. I think it's the same reason. And that's what you already explained before uh, about the US. It's it's really the size of the market yeah. and, and much less complexity in, in order to scale. So we see that companies in order to scale up in Europe uh, might need uh, five plus years um, in order to get to the same size as you get in the US, given the complexity that they will uh, face. So in that sense, that's why there is the American dream also in, in Europe, let's say. But the, the good thing is that um, uh, definitely US investors are also coming uh, into Europe and are also tapping opportunities into, into Europe. And there are some specific markets that it makes much more sense to stay in Europe than going into, into the US. But a, a lot of founders consider it, even starting almost from day one uh, in, in the US, depending on what is the industry that they are attacking, if it might make more sense East Coast or um, West Coast for them and uh, keeping product and engineering um, mm. in, in Europe. Uh, also to be able to compete, as you said, in terms of um, uh, the cost of talent, uh, which is still very, very competitive in, in some European countries compared to uh, the East Coast or, or even the West Coast in, in the US. Mm. I, I know for Southeast Asia, uh, there's a, all of those things are the same. They also care about the prestige. Exactly. There's something about kind of like if you are recognized in the U.S. as a startup that like means something, uh, which uh, you know I can we can debate on whether that actually should mean anything, but uh, there's a bit of that. And it it's curious because it's uh, it also happens, uh, let's say, in some European countries, if you are able to prove in the U.S. that uh, it works 
then it would be much easier to expand even in Europe. So, uh, which is kind of crazy, but <laughs> that's kind of the, the reality. But also it depends on, on the country. For instance, Portugal is a very uh, open country to what comes from outside. There are other countries in Europe um, that are a little bit more, uh, believe more, trust more in products that come from uh, inside the, the mm. country. So, it really depends on on the culture of uh, each country. And again, what happens in the in the US, some countries allow founders to stay a lot of time in those countries because the markets are relatively big, not so big as, as the US. And that's why there is always a dream. But uh, anyway, uh, 80, 80 million people in, in Germany, 66 or, or something in, in France, also 60 million in, in the UK. So there are considerable markets to explore before uh, expanding into, into a second market in, in that case. And let's go into what are the main differences that you see in terms of the culture of uh, VCs and investors uh, in, in both regions. This is a sometimes hotly debated topic. And so I'll, I'll try to wade in uh, mindfully. Um, <laughs> so I think... The biggest differences are the ecosystem are in different different stages of kind of development, right? I think San Francisco is kind of like in the latest stage, and I would argue probably China is kind of in that stage now too. And, and what I mean by that in and and how this practically uh, matters is a lot of investors in in San Francisco have seen the companies like grow really big. They've made a lot of money in through these exits, and so that's happened several times. That has made um, investors in Silicon Valley uh, both rich and uh, risk uh, tolerant, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, they saw they were around when Mark Zuckerberg came through Sand Hill Road and kind of like did his pitches and everybody was like, who's this guy in pajamas, right? And then it turns out it's Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> right? So I feel like every investor who uh, came did their pitches in pajamas for the next nine months after that probably got invested because for all the people who kind of, you know, missed out on that one. Um, and so they're just very, they're looking for risk. Um, so maybe one thing that I think about a lot is uh, I'm a math guy, I study math in school. So there's this notion of expected uh, value. So expected value is defined as probability of success multiplied by magnitude of success. <laughs> Silicon Valley is all about magnitude of success. They don't care that much about probability of success. If you walk in there and you say, hey, I'm going to do this thing. If I'm right, it changes the world, but there's a 1% chance that I'm right. And if somebody else walks in and says, hey, I'm going to do this thing, it's going to make the world incrementally better, but I'm 50% right, they're, they're going to invest in the first one every time, right? Southeast Asia investors, I think a little bit, they care a little bit more of probability of success. They're a little bit more afraid of losing money. And look, fair enough. There hasn't yeah. been as many exits here. Uh, their LPs, uh, their LPs and Asian LPs tend to be a little bit more risk averse. Uh, the idea of having their money tied up in venture capital funds for the next seven to nine years, uh, venture capital funds are 95% of the time wrong and those businesses are going to zero. It's a lot to swallow, right? Now it's easy in the Valley because they can point to, I got into Google and all this stuff. And so I think LPs are like, yeah, yeah, I get it. I've seen lots of people make money off of this, but Southeast Asia is has, that hasn't happened yet. I think it will happen. Um, so this risk tolerance thing, I think is kind of like different, right? And oh, by the way, if you think about expected value, um, it's almost impossible to 10x your probability of success, but you can like 100x your magnitude of success, right? So you have, I don't know, a 20% chance of being successful. You can't 10x 20%, right? Mathematically cannot be done you probably are never sniffing anything above 50% anyway, because startups are like, there's no way that a startup has a 50% chance of success. It's just no way. So even if you're at 20%, maybe the best you can do is you can double best. Right. But magnitude of success, you know, you can thousand X, you know, 10,000 X, that kind of stuff. And so uh, I think I tend to, maybe I come from that ecosystem. And so I think a little bit more on that, but uh, we often ask ourselves less about uh, what are all the ways that this doesn't work and more about if this is, 
if this actually works, like how big of an impact can that be? Um, so I think there's some there's some differences here between the, the, the two parts. Definitely a great explanation. I love the, the magnitude. I never heard this explanation. I think it's it's simply brilliant to, uh, and, and even for, for the ones who are thinking about if I should go with this idea or that idea, it might be also a good criteria to help us have that debate uh, on, on the ideation process, let's say. Right. Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely. Um, I think we didn't think about that when we first were starting companies, but if I was starting companies again, uh, I would literally go through my list of ideas and I would score on these two things and try to find the thing that had the highest like score, right, between the two. Yeah. Um, but I would probably weight magnitude more. Absolutely. I kind of, I think I translated it recently about a conversation also about my, my own career. It's when you have uh, high risk, you need to have a potential high return. It doesn't make mm. any mm. sense to have high risk and not have the potential of high return. So I think that's, that, that, what, uh, that was a very um, interesting lesson to me uh, personally to, to really understand that uh, it's okay to be risky, but at least, uh, as you said, we need to be able to have a, a high magnitude of success if, if, the, if that happens, right? <laughs> yeah, and you are absolutely right. Another way to kind of like, um, think about this. Uh, it, I just see this pop up every once in a while is uh, I forget who did this, but somebody won a Nobel prize, I think in economics or something for, uh, he wrote a paper on modern por portfolio theory. So this is what all the robo advisors use. And his whole point was, if you are taking more risk, you should be compensated for taking more risk. So the whole way that you build a portfolio is don't take risk unless you're compensated for it, because that makes absolutely no sense, right? So only take risk when you are fairly compensated for it. And so I think it's it's just another version of kind of like love what you're it. talking about. Love it, love it. So let's let's go into the insights uh, about starting up a company uh, again and those initial stages uh, about how, how to identify the, the best idea to, to start with. So um, what are some yeah. of your tools and frameworks to help companies to go through the ideation stage? Yeah, so I think if we start from the very beginning, and look, there's many ways to do this. And, uh, you know, any, any type of story uh, we want to tell, we can find some founding story that like worked this way. In our experience, the mythical notion that you were sitting around somewhere and you thought you had some brilliant idea and it came fully formed in your head is kind of rubbish. I don't know any <laughs> founder where that was the case, right? Um, famously, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, when he was working on Facebook in the first two years, I think spent six months working on a completely different product because he didn't think that Facebook was going to be that big of a deal. He was working on this P2P share, like sharing company. Um, and so I just, I just don't think these things come fully formed. So, you know, maybe for your listeners, if they're sitting out there and they're being like, oh, I want to start something, but I just don't have an idea. And they're hoping to be struck by lightning. <laughs> uh, you might go a very long time uh, hoping to be struck by lightning. What practically happens is you need to get in the game. So what I mean by this is uh, don't overthink it early on. And what I mean by this is like, start building, just start working on anything that you think is useful to like some small group of people, right? So the first step for us is this doesn't have to be a world-changing idea necessarily. I mean, hopefully it does and you can kind of indulge yourself in this, but oftentimes just start with, is there some group of people who need the thing that I'm building? And if you can get that small group of people, then we can go figure out if there's more of those people. Um, the other thing that we typically suggest to people is be obsessed with the problem, not the solution, right? All businesses, startups, restaurants, anything, all businesses exist to solve people's problems. If you don't solve anybody's problems, you're not going to be in a business for very long. The solution changes all the time. Right. And so uh, we tend to look for founders and we suggest to founders, Hey, go look for problems. And then you can be creative about how you kind of like work on those solutions. And honestly, most of the founders, most of the stars that we work with, you know, the first year they work on a problem, they probably come at it from like 
six or seven different angles, right? Um, so I think aligning around a problem is like a really important thing. Um, and sometimes those problems are obvious and sometimes they're not. Um, maybe the, the mindset that I would suggest everybody get into is don't assume that the world, that the way the world is, is the way it should be or that it has to be. I think this is a big difference for a lot of people sometimes. Um, my favorite example of this is, I think most people when they sit in traffic, they're like, ah, traffic. This is, this is what we all experience, right? And you just kind of resign to it, right? And I think an entrepreneur kind of sits down and is stuck in traffic and just gets so upset. They're like, this doesn't have to be the case. How do I eliminate traffic forever? There's a better way. <laughs> There's a better way. Why are we all sitting in cars you know, at this light waiting, right? <laughs> and look, maybe some of it is kind of like, you know, you, you can, you know, okay, if we're breaking down this idea, which I've thought about sitting in traffic before, it's ridiculous how much space is between all of us waiting in line because we're all sitting in our own cars and all this stuff, right? So, okay, can you kind of group people? Can you do all this stuff? Should people take less cars? <laughs> Should they do? But the point being is like, don't assume that the world has to be this way, right? I think an entrepreneur's job is you go out into the world, you say, hey, this sucks. Right. How do I make this better for everybody? Right. And so you kind of want to have that mindset and you start pulling on that thread and you can kind of like go down. So um, lots of things we can kind of unpack without a look, but maybe those are kind of like good places for people to start. Right. And I think that at this stage is really all about uh, problem solution fit uh, before thinking about uh, product market fit and, and later on uh, go to market fit. Right. Yeah. And maybe I'll share one story of how this really made all the difference for us. Experimentation is really important um, because and maybe your listeners are much smarter than me, but like I couldn't sit in a room by myself and come up with the next big idea. I just couldn't do it. And so we experimented a lot. And what I mean by this is when we started our first company, before we came about with the actual idea that eBay eventually bought, we made a rule. Every week we met on Monday and during that meeting, we decided whether we were going to spend another week on the idea we had just worked on the previous week or whether mm -hmm. we were going to work on a new idea. The only rule with starting a new idea is it needed to be released the following week. No exceptions, right? Mm -hmm. And the thing that was good about this was a few things. One, we got really good at building MVPs because we only had a week. And I think the reality is, which was painful for all of us being technical, was Writing software is actually not the fastest path to releasing. It's doing stuff manually, which PG has a whole thing about kind of like, you know, do things that don't scale. But it's mm -hmm. the same idea. Software just helps you scale. That's all software does, right? But if you want to do things quickly and you want to have be very nimble about it, just do it yourself. Open, open up a spreadsheet and like you can do a lot of stuff. Um, and the other thing it did for us is we debated so much less. So we got into this one week cycle because we had spent the previous 18 mm -hmm. months debating our grand idea only to launch it and nobody <laughs> cared, right? Because we didn't talk to any customers and we didn't experiment and we didn't do any of that stuff. So instead of debating, like if you and I were going to start a company and we were going to release in a year, you and I are going to debate so much about what we release and how it should work and all of that stuff. And it, and we did that. And it turns out all of that time was basically wasted anyway, because none of us knew what we were talking about and nobody cared about it anyway. When we did these one week cycles, all the debating stopped because look, it was just a week. Like, you know, you might have an sure. idea. I might hate your idea. I might be like, that's a, I think that's a dumb idea, but you know what? I'll make a deal with you. Let's do your idea this week. And then next week, let's do my idea. So we just, instead of having several hour debates about stuff. We just started building stuff and launching it and then kind of like seeing how the market reacted to stuff. So um, I think that was kind of the key. That That's how we ended up with the, the first company uh, and the idea that we worked on there. So um, I would suggest that people kind of like debate less, kind of like experiment more. Experiment more and, and talk more uh, with the-, the Talk more with customers, customers, yes. Right, so that this is really, really, uh, important and, and easy for, to forget even for the most experienced <laughs> i agree i agree uh, and um, and later on so of course creating the deck and being ready for uh raising a pre-seed round so 
what what do you think that founders should do in order to be ready to go into into that stage so after having the first idea and maybe running through those um, one uh, cycle uh, weeks on experimentation, they find, okay, this is an idea and this is a problem that uh, worth our time to work on. Uh, there is a pro probability and the magnitude of yep. success yep. <laughs> that uh, marry the opportunity. And so it's it's time for us to to go raise uh, around to to be able to work more on on this yep. and get into the into the next step, which would be the the seed stage. So, how do we build a deck? Yep. Um, so I I would say the first thing I would ask founders is, are you sure you want to do this? <laughs> and what I mean by that is, if you raise money from VCs, you are now going to be working on this for the next five to seven years of your life if you're lucky. And that's a real thing, right? So I feel like I have some founders who are like, they kind of just wanted to start a startup. They didn't love the idea. And then they're four years in and they're just like, oh man, I got to like work on this idea, even though I, now I see much better ideas. Right. So first step, yeah. if you're going to take people's money, that's a commitment. You're going to have a responsibility to them. Make sure you are ready to kind of like honor that commitment. Right. So, okay. Let's say that you are. Mm -hmm. um, we just did this uh, with our batch. So uh, this is very fresh in my mind. Um, we think of these first pitches in two ways. First, there's a story element to the pitch and there's a traction element to the pitch, right? So mm -hmm. the story element is what is what is the change you are bringing about the world and why is this going to be such a big idea? And you're talking about magnitude of success, right? Most of it. Right. Traction is, do you have evidence Traction is evidence that what you're saying is probably right. So, mm -hmm. you know, you can think about it this way. If I'm pitching you a company and I have this fantastic story about how I'm going to change the world, but I can't get any customers, you're going to be like, oh, it's a great story. I just, I just don't think it's true because if it was <laughs> such a great story, why don't you have a bunch of customers, right? Exactly. And then there's some pitches where they have a lot of traction, but they have a very, they don't have a very good story. So, okay. They may have a fair bit of customers, but they can't articulate why this is going to be such a big thing. So if you think about traction and story as a two by two kind of like matrix, mm -hmm. you obviously want to have very good story, very good traction. Right. You obviously don't want to have bad traction, bad story. The other two quadrants are interesting. So we find that if you have, good traction in a bad story, you may be able to fundraise, but your valuation is going to be quite low. Right? Investors are basically like, look, I just don't think the magnitude of success here is going to be that big. So I'm just not going to invest at a higher valuation. Okay. The other quadrant, which is low traction, high story, it really depends. We've seen some startups raise at pretty high valuations because the story is so good and so compelling that they think that the traction is going to kind of like happen at some point. They're just trying to figure it out. Um, the U.S. tends to love to invest in those much more than Southeast Asia. So there's a little bit of a difference there, but you can kind of think about like, how good is your story? How good is your traction? And that's like a pretty decent place to kind of like start, I think. Got it. And how do you describe the, of course, then we could could go into much more detail and we yeah. don't have enough time. Slide by slide. Podcast, and, uh, yeah. Et cetera. Yeah. But uh, going a little bit uh, quicker through these initial stages from yeah. zero to one, let's say what we need to prove from pre-seed uh, into ah. seed or what do we need to prove into raise in order to raise the next round uh, successfully. Got it. Yeah. So um, I think in order to raise your pre-seed round, you need to have a thesis about your market. You're like, hey, I think this is going to be a big deal for these reasons. And you need to have a thesis. And I specifically say thesis because you're not going to have figured it all out at that point. Um, so you need to have a thesis and you need to have some amount of traction to give evidence that your thesis is probable at least, right? Seed round, in order to raise the seed round, you need to have a fair bit of evidence that like, your thesis is in fact true, right? So um, you need to have obviously more traction, but maybe more than that, you need to figure out what the levers are. And what I mean by levers is, have you figured out who your target market is? 
uh, and, and be specific about it. I, I think sometimes I hear founders when they say the target market is, I don't know, 21 to 27 year olds. And I'm like, okay, so it's a lot of 21 to 27 year olds in the world, right? Like, what are we talking about? Um, and the more specific you can be, the better. Um, and even better than that is if you can talk about how the how you are going to acquire different market segments. So I'm going to acquire 21 to 25 year olds in Singapore uh, who are college educated for this reason, because they feel this problem uh, acutely. I'm going to get all of them. Okay. Once I get them, I'm going to go into this other group. Okay. Then once I get them, I'm going to, so you can, so investors can kind of see how your market is going to grow. Um, so I think pre-seed you hopefully have figured some of that out, but not that much at seed. You really need to kind of figure it out. Seed to series A is when you really need to prove that you can hit the gas, right? And you need to prove enough that this is a real business. Um, so maybe it was okay if you were growing fast from pre-seed to seed and you can raise money off of that. But um, if you're getting to series A and you don't have clear revenue and that kind of stuff, I think that's going to be challenging. Um, especially in the macro environment we're all about to start heading into, I think you're going to see a lot of later stage investors uh, suddenly care a lot more about burn and unit economics and revenue and clear path and all that stuff. So but the heydays of kind of like, just grow, 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 spend as much money as possible. Uh, we might see a slowdown here on that one. Got it. That, that's a, an amazing summary in such a short uh, period of time. Well done. I left a lot of challenges and say we have uh, <laughs> we have not so 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 much time now, and uh, and you were able to summarize it uh, very 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 well. So, any other tips that you would like to share for the ones? Uh, and we discussed this in the beginning of the show. Uh, we are seeing this trend, even for the ones who are now professional about looking into ideas. So I think that there are two kinds of entrepreneurs that I'm seeing. The traditional one, which is the one, as you said, that is facing that hurdle, that pain, and believe that it should be a better way uh, to solve that problem because they feel it, the pain themselves, and they start realizing there are a lot of people in the world who feel the same kind of problem, and they they solve that problem by purpose and there are now what i call more the professional entrepreneur that is the <laughs> one who is kind of searching ideas all over yep. the world and maybe that idea might make more sense to launch in southeast asia or in latin than in the us or europe and they are ready to say look i will go into southeast asia and launch this idea and uh, and this yep. is the right timing for the market also the why now kind of uh, yep. slide um so any, any other uh, tips to consider uh, for the ones who are starting up from scratch uh, in, in the first angle or the second uh, angle? Yeah, and, and um, this is not what you asked, but just a comment on those two types. It's perfect. We all wish we were the first one, mm -hmm. but the reality is, is kind of like, you know, sometimes we don't all kind of like work on problems that we kind of face ourselves, right? So I look, we all wish we were the first one. It's easier because then you're just solving a problem you have. You, you still should do customer development, but you just understand it so well, right? A lot of people have been very successful being the second group. So if you feel like you're in the second group, you're not cheating, you're not disingenuous, like it's fine. But the thing you need to remember is if it's not a problem that you have, you need to spend a lot more time understanding the problem and internalizing those users so that you can go work on uh, that problem. Right. So right. I think the first thing I would probably say to people is be very clear on which group you are and then act mm -hmm. accordingly. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's a, like a key difference kind of like between those two groups. Got it. Love it. So let's go into the quick question and answer mm. uh, part of, uh, of the show to, to wrap up. So if you would have an opportunity to have a coffee with your younger self, let's say at the beginning of Iterative, what advice would you offer to your younger self? Oh, beginning of Iterative? Yes. Oh. Or, or, or would you prefer to go into the beginning of your first or second venture? You decide. I'll, I'll do both. I'll do quick ones. Uh, awesome. Iterative, uh, I would probably say uh, higher faster. Um, I think we, we just, we just got really busy into kind of working on stuff. And I think we just like hire too slow. So iterative as of three months ago was just Brian and I, and now it's like four of us. And I just, I just think we were like much too slow, uh, which is a classic kind of startup problem. So 
if it was talking to myself <laughs> earlier on, I'd just be like higher, a little bit faster, stop, stop trying to hero, you know, do everything. Right. <laughs> exactly. Which I think a lot of entrepreneurs, I think kind of have this problem. I'll do that. Um, yeah. <laughs> if I was talking to my younger self, let's say the person before the first company, when we're kind of like starting out and that kind of stuff, I think the thing I would tell myself is, I don't know if this is going to be useful to people enjoy it a little bit more. I was so impatient to get somewhere and do something and all of that. I wish I enjoyed it a little bit more. Um, I have very kind of like fond memories of those times. Um, but you know, when I think back of it, it's like, I just wanted to get through it as quickly as possible. Um, and I kind of wish I can never get those times back. And I kind of wish that, you know, I kind of like stopped a little bit more to kind of like enjoy kind of what we were doing rather than like, okay, we raised this fund. We got to raise the next one. We got to do this. We got to get, get acquired. And we got to do that. Like, look, just enjoy check. it. Right. It, yeah. Like less check. Right. And more like, this is a really fun experience. It was a, you know, I was 22, 23 when we started, I spent my entire twenties in it and you know, those were like fun times. So I don't know, not, maybe not helpful to your viewers, but uh, if they're going through it, uh, take more photos and enjoy it a little bit more. I believe so. And even for the ones who are in, in your 20s, uh, enjoy a lot. Enjoy it. Enjoy and, it. and leverage the opportunity. Yep. 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 So, what are you the most proud of on your entrepreneurial journey so far? I think. I think a lot of people would be like, oh, is it selling companies and raising funds? And you know, honestly, it's not it's not any of those things. Uh, I think it's I feel like all this stuff is I don't know how useful it is. Um, I'm really proud that we've done business the way that I think business should be done. There's a lot of if you if you kind of work long enough, there's a lot of opportunities where you can take some shortcut and screw somebody. You can it's easier to do something that uh, is different than what you said you were going to do. Um, and I, I feel like I kind of like have a fair bit of peace and sleep well at night knowing that like in all these situations, we kind of did the right thing. Um, and so, um, let, and so I think, I don't know, I'm kind of proud of that. I think it matters. It matters less to me kind of like where we get in more, like I'm a big process person. So doing things the right way kind of matters to me. And so I, I think I'm always proud of that. It seems simple, but uh, for the ones who are listening, yes, follow your fellows and be loyal to, to the culture of the company. But when you are in high pressure situations uh, and when doing the wrong thing might help you to go into the next stage and doing the right thing might make it a little bit more difficult. Uh, that's when we see uh, if we are really at at the level uh, that we wish we were, right? And and, and that's why I'm saying I, I really uh, empathize uh, with you. Yeah, that's it's it's always great to do the right thing, but uh, we only know when we are there. Right? <laughs> and, and, and actually, maybe I'll say one thing: it is it is great to do the right thing. You feel good about yourself, that kind of stuff. I also think it makes the it's the right business thing to do. Yeah. If you think about, especially in the startup ecosystem, it's a very long game. I've now, I'm 39 now. So I've been doing it for what, 18 years. Like it's a long game. Exactly. You're going to work with these people. You're going to run into them for a long time. Uh, you know, you, if you, if you kind of cross people kind of like too early on, you're not, people aren't going to want to work with you. And I think the more you're in it, I think the, the less your opportunities are going to be. So both morally good, but also I think makes good business sense. Good business sense. Kind of the Warren Buffett, uh, it takes a life to build a reputation. Uh, ah, there you go. And and the minutes to uh, to art the reputation or to break yeah. the reputation. Let's say, worst advice ever received. It. <laughs> uh, we were joking about this before we got on this call. Uh, I apologize, uh, Dad. I might throw you under the bus here a little bit. Um, <laughs> when I graduated, it. when I graduated from college, my my father, who was an immigrant. All he wanted was stability for his kids, he moved to America. And so uh, he really wanted me to take uh, like very normal, typical corporate job. Um, and I told him I was going to start a startup. And he said, what does the startup do? And I said, I don't know. And then he said, what do you know about starting startups? And I said, not very much. Um, and he said, how much are you going to get paid? And I said, well, we don't have any money. And he was like, 
Crazy. What are you doing? <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't understand, right? Um, and so I think, and look, he's a, he's a, he, you know, he's obviously a parent. And so these are kind of the right questions to kind of ask, but um, I think uh, I'm glad I did not listen to him on that one. And, uh, and now you can explain him the, the importance of the magnitude of, of success. <laughs> well, I think what's funny now is uh, he, uh, he, like, he like gave a talk for the Malaysian government about the importance of startups and entrepreneurialism wow. or something like that. And I was like, wow. I, I was in the back. I was like, where was this when I was telling him that I wanted to do this? <laughs> Favorite business book. Okay, so this one is not necessarily a book, um, but I want to shout this out to everybody. Because um, this was like seminal to me when I first started. Um, if you Google P. Marsa blog, it is Mark Andreessen's early blogs from the early 2000s. He actually took them from his, he removed them from his website, but they were so seminal that everybody, like people have reposted it and stuff. Um, mm -hmm. But he writes these like 10 short essays about how to think about startups. And it is a collection that I revisit uh, several times a year, just to kind of like relook at it and that kind of stuff. Um, Mark Andreessen, of course, of Andreessen Horowitz is uh, kind yep. of like a famed entrepreneur and investor. And so um, they're very candid posts. And so I think if you haven't seen those before, I, I would highly recommend. So I apologize, not a book, but, you know, still hopefully That's helpful. That's a great one. And by the way, for the ones who are not familiar with uh, the expression that so can use it during the show, PG means a Paul Graham Uh, at uh, Wycombe, the, the famous uh, founder yes, of... Yes. Um, His essays are also fantastic. They're like the gospel in Silicon Valley. So yeah, if you want to do that too. So for the ones who are outside the region and, and are not aware. Favorite movie or series? Oh my gosh. Uh, that is tough. I, I don't know about favorite. Um, I just finished Billions last night that's, the new season have you seen this have you seen billions before not yet but that's one the one who is in my list that's why <laughs> okay yeah um I, i can't say it kind of makes me want to be a hedge fund like run a hedge fund or something like that just because it seems cool and i'm sure it's a dramatization but uh it's, it's a great show it's a lot of fun even if the characters are kind of like the worst of humanity right. uh so i don't know if it's my favorite but i quite enjoy it We, we kind of uh, enjoy the the angle and and the the thought process, even yes. if, we, if we don't follow it. So favorite uh, podcast, of course, excluding this, this one. one. <laughs> It's this one. It's definitely this one. Um, after this one, um, I quite I get a lot of value from. Uh, maybe I would say two. Uh, The Andreessen Horowitz podcasts are very kind of like deep. And so what I think that's interesting about those is they talk a lot about spaces, about specific spaces and where they think technology is going. That's interesting. But I think the more interesting thing is how do they think about spaces, I think is actually interesting. So I listen to those not to be educated on the space, but to see how they talk about it and what kind of like mental frameworks they use to kind of like look at those okay. to see if I can kind of like borrow and mimic from some of that. So I think those are good. Um, and then I, I, I listen to uh, Ben uh, Thompson from Stratechery's podcast quite a lot. Uh, I'm a big Stratechery fan. Uh, it's this paid um, uh, newsletter that he's been writing for years, um, but it's famed in Silicon Valley uh, as in uh CEOs of publicly traded companies will read some of his analysis and change their like own kind of like roadmaps because of that. So um, if people aren't, you know, aren't familiar with that, uh, that that's quite good too. It's great points. So Ken, thanks so much for making the time. It was a lot of fun to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Hopefully this was helpful for people. Absolutely. And uh, we would love to, as you, as you saw, uh, to have shared much more than what we were able to share. But we are, we are sure that there was a lot of value uh, delivered in this show. We keep bringing you the best of the best to make your life a little bit easier uh, starting up and scaling up your company. See you soon and keep scaling.